Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Avi Kravitz. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. In this episode, we chat with Kieran Hodgson, who is the Managing Director and Research Analyst for Commodities and Mining at UK investment bank Panmure Gordon. In his role, Kieran has a different view of the diamond industry than our typical guest, looking at the market from an investment standpoint, and he shares his insights about the industry's profile in that space, the steps taken in the past decade that have raised that profile and help it manage recent crises. We also talk about changes affecting the market, some of the challenges and opportunities currently confronting the diamond sector, and many more topics. I always gain a lot from my discussions with Kieran, and this time was no different. I'm sure you'll do the same, so please enjoy my conversation with Kieran Hodgson. Hi, Kieran. It's great to see you and welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me, Avi. Good to speak to you again. Likewise. And we have conversations every now and then about the market and we get a lot of insight from you in our reporting. So it's great to have you on the podcast. And I think it gives our listeners a bit of a different angle or viewpoint of the diamond industry, given your position in the market. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you. And maybe that's a good place to start because I think a lot of the people in the industry might not be familiar with what a research analyst's role is and how you approach the market. So maybe you can start by just explaining what you do and your role and the angle from which you come to the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. In the financial industry, obviously brokers are very largely or largely seen as that conduit between an industry and an investor. But analysts, we turbocharge that relationship because we are able to offer uh, a deeper insight into industries for both the investment community, but also we also provide some reverse information for the industry itself because we're very fortunate to have multiple touch points throughout the industry and multiple company touch points where the average chief executive may not actually enjoy. So analysts are very fortunate that we get to look at a holistic view of an industry and then get to opine on it with our own views. In a way, it's in a similar way to how a journalist might approach it in that you, you're not invested in the industry, I would imagine, although I think there is some advisory role that you play to some mining companies. But you have no skin in the game, really. And so people would rely on you for that sort of honest assessment of what's going on in the market. Is that fair enough? Absolutely. And there there are very clear rules and regulations about having skin in the game, so to speak, and then opining on an industry, which may obviously seem some unseemly events. So yes, absolutely. We are fully independent from that perspective, but obviously we do offer advice services to mining companies that are listed on public markets that need that advice and professional viewpoints. So maybe you can give a bit about your personal background and what led you to this, because it's a re- in, in the investment world, it's a relatively small sort of sector, the diamond market in particular. I know you cover broader commodities as well, but you have a, it seems that you have a special interest in diamonds. Firstly, is that correct? And secondly, what sort of led you or drew you to the industry? Yeah, indeed. You're completely correct. Yeah, obviously, I cover a range of commodities. I think it's seven or eight separate commodities with individual mining within. But the diamond and gemstone space is definitely where, shall we say, my heart lies. That's where I get the most excitement. I think it's quite obvious for the industry that the ability to hold 100 carats in your hand offers a level of excitement and nervousness that is probably unrivaled by looking at a ton of copper, so to speak. Diamond have personality. Oh, maybe that's the way to put it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And there's an appreciation of the rarity of the product as well. But basically going back to the history of it, I sort of 2010, I was on an investment management company. And then I was asked to move to the sales side for a very established, well-known private client stockbroker in the UK. The only problem they had done is actively avoided commodities and mining in their multi decade history. So I was tasked with starting a franchise at that business. And as one goes in as an individual, you try to look at industries that offer the lowest barriers to entry. And the Diamond and Gemstone space in 2011 or 10-11 was a very interesting space. There was one very renowned analyst covering the space, as you'll know, Des Kilalea, who it was often seen as the doyen of diamonds, as we kindly named him. And for me, Des had recently presented to me on the buy side. So that kind of piqued my interest about the industry, the opportunity within. And that kind of, once I started looking at the companies, I started to understand the industry. As many of your listeners know, once it gets into your blood, there's no turning around, I'm afraid. I'm interested, you say there was a low low entry barrier to the diamond industry. What do you mean by that? Is that from an investment point of view or an analyst understanding point of view? It's actually a bit of both, really. It's the awareness of the industry from an investment perspective. The number of analysts covering the space and also the awareness of analysts of the industry. So you look at it from an investment perspective, almost like a SWOT analysis if you're looking at a company. And it was very clear that there was a opportunity to start a franchise in, in an industry that unbeknownst to me all those years ago would end up being such a large part of my life. Fair enough. One thing that attracts me to the industry as just as in terms of my personality is that I feel there's a certain structure to the market. And I'm not sure, maybe you can comment if this is paralleled in other commodities, but the kind of the pipeline, the way the pipeline is structured, there's a linear approach, even though a diamond passes through so many hands, but I like that it moves from mine to a manufacturer it's through the dealer market. And, you know, there's that kind of linear structure that maybe suits my obsessive compulsive nature. So I, I'm curious if you find the same in the diamond industry. There is kind of a, almost a simplicity to the way one can analyze and approach the one's analysis to the industry. Yeah, I won't do the industry a disservice by saying it's simple to, to analyze because it most certainly isn't. But the ability to take a holistic view on the industry from a producer midstream end consumer perspective, it can be done in a way that an individual can look and get an idea of what the, the strength of the industry, the state of the industry in a way that's far easier than I would say, for example, coal, where it's uh, is it, the industry is wide and disparate, whereas the number of mining operations, for example, are relatively few. Economic diamond mines are even fewer. You can get a good sense of what the pipeline will entail, what the future production profile will look like. But also then you can apply macroeconomic views towards consumer behavior. And then you can get a, a good view of how the industry will evolve over a period of time, whereas looking at copper or gold or other commodities, it's very difficult to get that view that gives you that start and end point within one conversation. Okay. I think you put it more elegantly than maybe I have it structured in my mind. So I appreciate that. But there's also that consumer element to it that it's so directly affected by the consumer sentiment that I think also differentiates it from those other commodities. And I think what's interesting is you came into the market when the industry was still kind of 
family driven. De Beers was still Oppenheimer owned along with Anglo's share in it. And El Rosa hadn't hadn't gone public either yet. The public nature of the industry was in its infancy at the time. So it must have been quite interesting to observe that transition to a more, particularly certainly in the mining space, a more transparent and publicly driven or market driven industry. Yeah, I had significantly more hair when I first started covering the sector and how the industry has evolved has been for its benefits, whilst many will disagree because of their own personal wealth impacts, except through those years. But I came from an industry that was front and center in the GFC, the great financial crisis. So I saw how industries were impacted by factors outside of their own control. I came into the city of London in 1997. And if anyone knows much about sort of financial markets, um, you know, things, events such as the Great Bang, etc. In, in financial markets, the way that regulation had overtaken the way that transparency had become, it wasn't just optional, it become essential and obligatory. Seeing the diamond industry take some of those positive factors that I had seen in the financial industry many years beforehand enabled me to take a more pragmatic view of the positive drivers that they have for the industry over the long term. But things like consolidation, the repricing of risk, the realization that assets need to be secured or loans need to be secured on assets and you can't take loans for 125%, 150% value of goods, inclusive of speculatory price movements. These were all negative, should we say, factors within the industry that at the time were one of the, some key negative drivers for an investor's appreciation for an industry that is a significant contributor to GDP around the world for multiple economies. That regulatory environment, which um, was accelerated during the great financial crisis, as you put it, had that trickle-down effect on the rest of the industry and the banking regulations that came into effect and De Beers and El Rosa and others who required of their clients to meet forest standards, international financial reporting standards. And I think that has prepared the industry for the next crisis, which was essentially the COVID crisis. Would you agree with that? Have you seen that the industry is much more or or much better positioned to deal with these sort of macroeconomic shocks than, than 10 years ago? Yeah, I mean, I remember writing reports sort of 12, 13, 14, talking about the need to bring the industry into a more robust regulatory framework to provide depth of economic resilience. Because the, the, the industry often lurched from one crisis to another, from exuberance to despair, found itself just going from one thing. <laughs> the good headline I'm going to use. <laughs> it was very frustrating because I would be talking to one end of the value chain. I'd be talking to a mining company who was absolutely optimistic about price movements. And then I would be talking about to someone in the midstream who was you know, relatively cautious. And at the same time, the retail was having a terrible time shifting goods and the need to rationalize their inventory. Thus, you've got that whole spectrum of emotions within an industry that is, one would prefer it to be more aligned. Financial resilience helps to bring that. And I do think that the changes made, the regulatory frameworks that were put in place, banking regulations, etc., have protected the industry from the very worst. And I've seen work, I've seen industries 
impacted worse than the diamond industry over the last two, three years. But also before then, you recall the situation 2015, 2016, and the ability to respond to crises now has changed as well, because there's a willingness for market leaders to be leaders. And I think that's also put the industry in good stead. So for me, I think that was partially one of the reasons why the industry recovered so strongly from the COVID disruptions. And I saw it responding far stronger than a lot of other industries that I cover because of that framework that was put in place. That's very interesting because most, and I think somewhat correctly, attribute the strong recovery that the industry experienced in 2020 and 2021 from COVID to consumer demand. And and that is true. I think we both would agree with that, that there was the experience economy had quietened and given people more disposable income, et cetera, et cetera. But I think from the supply point of view, it's quite interesting that there's that regulatory framework that enabled companies to withstand that initial initial downturn that took place during COVID. Yeah, the, the feedback loop had been significantly improved, that the ability for producers to respond to buyers' desire was a what I would call a complete change in historical mindset. And that response function is now something that I think is an incredible positive for, for the industry going forward. And just when we thought the industry had its emotions in check, it faces a new <laughs> a new crisis in terms of the geopolitical situation that's going on. And also in the macroeconomic space that, you know, at least from our observation, there is a lot more caution in the market. And again, it feels depending on who you speak to really dictates the sentiment in the market. And so how do you view the market at the moment? It started 2022 in a fairly balanced and healthy position, and that seemed to change very quickly. Yeah, and this is where our position as industry analysts is a a very fortunate one because we can take that very high-level view, we can take that macroeconomic view, and rather than looking at it from a micro standpoint, we can take that overarching view and and look at the industry more accepting the fact that it's incredibly dynamic. And when the crises unfolded, one of the first things we called for was a, a significant bifurcation in the market, not just in just pricing, but also consumer attitudes, buyer attitudes, there was going to be an almighty split in the industry and that is likely to be a feature for a long time yet and it's a split in the market from both the perspective of consumer purchasing behavior buyers behavior the willingness to pay prices based on origin and also the impact on the producers themselves so the industry in many regards has been split not irreparably But it's definitely shown that the industry has multiple drivers that at any one time can become a dominant force. That was also our view. And even before the Russia-Ukraine conflict began, which took all the Russian goods off, apparently took all the Russian goods off the market, let's say. But even before then, there was a strong sort of social responsibility drive and traceability programs that came to the market before, you know, even through COVID as well, and different things driving that trend. But this definitely, the Russia crisis definitely accelerated the mindset that there would be a bifurcation in the market. And we felt that that was a given that there would be that, that, let's say, the responsibly sourced in inverted commas goods would sell at a premium to non-responsibly sourced goods. And it's not, for me, it's not clear that's happening. In my discussions with manufacturers in India, they seem to be buying Russian goods 
and at competitive prices that the El Rosa goods that are coming onto the market and legally so as, as if they are sent to different markets outside of the United States, they're not sanctioned. But one would have thought that they would sell at a discount. And would you agree with me that they, it doesn't seem to be happening as quickly as we would have thought? Well, I, when I look at this from how we look at things, there is a danger that we apply Western views to an industry that is global. And I think that sometimes we can prejudice our views of an industry based on our own beliefs and what we know based on the parts of the world to which we live, operate or do business. So from a sanctions perspective, the countries that have sanctioned Russian goods, yes, they are upholding the beliefs that they stand for. But there are significant volumes of consumers that are less concerned about the invasion. They're not as willing to punish or not have goods or pay a price premium for goods for something that they don't believe in. So I'm not surprised that Russian goods are coming to the market. I do believe that they are not being financed as enthusiastically as they would historically, that's probably something that is the, the market doing the right thing from a financing perspective. But there are going to be millions of consumers that really are nonplussed about where the goods come from. And the manufacturers, the retailers and the producers themselves, the problem comes when profit is more important than principles. And it also, I think it, it very much depends on the branding. I think the brands are the ones that are really going to be pushing this idea. And we've seen it in across all humanistic and environmental concerns. De Beers has been pushing the environmental aspect of its messaging for the last year or two or more. And so we're seeing these waves of issues that are coming front and center. And what I take from what you said is that if the United States has sanctions on those Russians' goods, that's where you might see the differentiation in pricing of such diamonds. That if a retailer goes through the sanctions loophole of substantial transformation, that the diamond is sourced in Russia but goes through a manufacturing center and comes into the United States legally, that those goods might not hold the same value as a non-Russian sourced diamond. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the great honors and privileges that I have with my job is that I get to travel all around the world. I get to talk to not just mining companies or just investors, but also the communities that those mining companies engage with, also the buyers. I get to, to talk to multiple stakeholders and I have an understanding and appreciation of the different wants and needs and expectations of different stakeholders at different parts around the world. So the wants and needs of stakeholders in a Canadian diamond mining operation is very different to the wants and needs of a small manufacturing facility in India that is also potentially looking to support a retail operation that sells regionally in parts of China. There are so many different influences. And one thing that I've come to appreciate over the years is that what I believe is right may not necessarily be replicated in other parts of the world. Yeah, that certainly echoes my experience within the industry over the years. The other concern that came up in, in early when the conflict arose is that there would be this shortage of goods in the market because the Russian supply accounts for such a large portion of global production. Obviously, 
rough supply has dropped, but um, there certainly are not um, the shortages that we would have expected. We're seeing at Rappaport a continued rise in polished inventory. And so how do you, I'd be interested to hear how you read into that. And then giving more a long-term view, if those shortages, you would expect those shortages to come about. I think that there was, initially there were definitely a reduction in volumes being made available. That's undeniable. But clearly the price rises that subsequently followed those fears of shortages of goods that clearly affected the enthusiasm of others to either recommence imports or those to recommence exports or to at least find a way to get those goods to market. And that is one of the problems with commodity prices is that the high prices incentivize supply. Uh, and in from some people's perspective, that supply is not necessarily what has been desired, but was arguably required due to the fact that there was clearly a shortfall in availability and the impacts that that has on other aspects of the value chain when prices rise exponentially is incredibly positive for the mining companies as well as I that the rest of the industry is less impressed by exponential price rises in rough. So I was going to say that sometimes reading your reports, and I understand why, because of your focus on the mining sector, that's where those public companies that, that you're following, that's your investor interest. And you would talk about a potential increase in rough pricing as a positive almost, whereas admittedly, often in our reporting, we're looking at it from the midstream, from the manufacturer's point of view, seeing it as a squeeze on profit margins of the manufacturing sector. So maybe it is a matter of perspective. Yeah, I look at the industry as a barstool with three legs, with the producers, the midstream and retail being the three most prominent parts. And you can have a wonky barstool, but you need all three legs to be broadly level to ensure that the continued resilience of the industry. Right. And, and I do think, as you alluded to earlier, that the industry is more sort of balanced in its mindset in that sense than it was 10 years ago. You mentioned from the regulatory point of view, but I think the mining companies maybe are a bit more sensitive to the sustainability of the other segments in the market. And then particularly from the mining sector, the manufacturers always complained that there was this miscommunication in how the rough market evolved relative to the polished. And I think both in terms of pricing and supply, we saw that there was a greater understanding during that COVID crisis, particularly from the mining companies. So I don't know if you would, would agree with that or not. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I completely agree. The collaboration was far higher than seen previously. And it goes back to the point we made earlier about how market leaders respond to crises now. They're more willing to take a leadership function and be willing to run with that and be responsible for the outcomes, not just for the producers, but also the rest of the industry. And that's something I think to cheer. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And so how do you see this current market situation playing out in the long term or maybe medium term if we look at through the rest of this year and, and 2023? Is there a supply crisis that we are facing? I think supply crisis is a strong term. You may use it in your publication, but I don't think we would. But we have consistently forecasted a relative shortage in diamonds from 24, 25 anyway, just due to the fact that there is a dearth of new operations coming into to the marketplace. But that shortfall is obviously being met by other factors, whether that be lab grown or whether it be recycling, etc. like that. But for primary production, we realistically see 
production falling to circa 100 million carats a year or even below by 2026, 2027, which if you consider that we were 170 million carats back in 2005, it's a significant decline. And it also talks to how difficult it is for mining operations to sustain longevity. We talk about price rises in rough prices and saying, oh, five, six percent. But the overriding cost profile of mining companies can significantly exceed that. So there are unrelenting pressures on mining companies as their operations deepen or they go underground or the investment capital required and also the financing. And there is a necessity for rough prices to rise continually because the cost pressures on mining companies, there's no respite for mining companies. And that is a factor that is just the truth for the industry as a whole. Cheap goods continually are not going to be available. It's something that I think the trade often discounts is that we take a simplistic view of the market, looking at it from polished prices and giving a relative comparison to the level of rough and then forgetting the rough producers have a cost basis, which is also working on a per carat average dollar per carat base. And if they fall below a certain selling price, it deems their operations unsustainable or economically not viable. Absolutely. Think about the industry. It's gone from being a highly consolidated industry to one that has a significant number of independent producers don't necessarily have either a government to support operations or a multinational diversified mining company to support their operations through periods of stress and strife. The market forces on the industry are now more prevalent than they ever have been, and that will continue to be a theme. So, so would that lead to a consolidation, a, a mergers and acquisitions rush in, in the mining sector? We've been talking or we've been feeling that it should make sense in certain geographical areas in the mining space, but it never really materialized. And I'm wondering if there's a reason for that and if that's something that you're keeping your eye on and might recommend to those companies that you're, um, <laughs> that you're advising. So its consolidation has been a theme since the industry started to reward independent producers as the, as the industry incentivized additional sources of production away from the two main traditional forms of supply. Consolidation has also been a theme because consolidation has always been deemed to be accretive for investors. I'm not so sure. There are a number of factors that complicate M&A transactions. Um, and I think one of the key ones now is the involvement of governments and key stakeholders with regards to social license to operate, that consolidation in certain areas of the world doesn't necessarily bring additional revenue for those key stakeholders or governments. Whilst it does make sense from a conceptual perspective, the realities of doing so sometimes is less obvious. That makes sense and maybe shed some light on my expectations or diminishes my expect <laughs> expectations and maybe changes an editorial or two. Yeah, I mean, one of the key things to look at is some of the mining license agreements where certain operations are obliged to achieve the best price in an open market situation. So whilst you would think that offtake agreements or M&A transactions would be the most advantageous route to market, there are actual agreements with the governments as key stakeholders and the effective owners of that resource that may preclude those transactions from taking place. 
Okay. Before we finish off, I would like to hear from you on the way rough diamonds are being sold. There seems to be a change in sort of emerging or taking hold at the moment of looking more further down the supply chain so that these vertically integrated agreements between mining companies, manufacturers and retailers as well, particularly on the high end. And then also you've got like the Clara model through Lucara that is really trying to look at the end demand and match the appropriate rough rather than the sort of supply-driven model that the industry is used to. How do you read into that? Is that something that's really going to change the industry already has? The way the industry operates, bring more efficiencies? Is that a positive for investors? Um, I think that the way that the industry sells goods will continually evolve. Actually, later this week, I'll be traveling to Antwerp to look at uh, multiple parcels of goods from different operations around the world. So I'll be having conversations with buyers of small goods, the bridal goods, plus also potentially some buyers of large plus 100 carat goods. So it's incredibly fortunate that those conversations can take place. But I think that the consumer demands different things now. I think the consumer is less amenable to being told what they like. They, the consumer now knows what it likes and also expects to receive what they desire as opposed to what they've been told they like historically. And I think for me, the way that goods are sold from a retail perspective is something that continues to evolve. The awareness of origin, the traceability of goods, I think where goods originate from can now differentiate price points. Fluorescence is another fact that I think can come back onto the conversation table once more. And also that lab-grown diamonds as well become a more relevant force for bringing additional consumers into the marketplace that may not necessarily find natural diamonds price points amenable to their immediate desire, but potentially provides a stepping stone for future purchases that may be of higher value or a more significant occasion in the future. The continuing, continual sort of factors that I see evolving. But recently, one of the things I have is still a level of trust about the industry when it comes to consumers and retail. I've recently just spent time going around various retail outlets in the Caribbean and coming across a lot of the lab-grown stones, how they're being sold to consumers and what left me dismayed was the level of distruth that was portrayed or the stories and how retail outlets are willing to portray natural diamonds as something that is not a benefit to the industry, whereas lab-grown are that ethical alternative. For me, I found myself getting particularly annoyed because I see and I have seen firsthand the benefit that mining operations bring to communities that otherwise have no form of income. It provides education, it provides healthcare, it provides a source of income, a source of purpose. And for me, that should we say the mistruths about lab-grown benefits need to be moderated and they and natural diamonds need to be more harmonious together because they both serve to grow the industry as a whole. And that for me is a first-hand frustration of just the pure lies that a lot of retailers are willing to say about natural stones. Very interesting. And uh, I'd agree with you. I do think that the natural diamond industry has a better story to tell. 
given that it's just not told very well it's not told very well and that aspect of having lab grown as an entry point is not the way retailers are selling lab grown it's really just from my experience it's a pricing play that they're able to sell a larger diamond for the same price and i would agree with you wholeheartedly that they're there is room to improve the harmonious, as you put it, way in which retailers are interacting between the two products. So I appreciate your comment. Yeah, exactly. And one to just take Botswana as an example from this, how the country looked in the 60s to, to where it is today. And the benefits that natural diamonds can bring to communities and gemstones as a whole, not just diamonds, rubies, emeralds, they can bring significant benefits. And I've been incredibly fortunate over the years to see how communities have been positively affected in from gemstone production as a whole and without any other source of recognized income. And for me, that that really is what diamonds and gemstones can do. I just don't think that message has been portrayed particularly well over the years. And if anything, the, the industry has probably laid down and allowed some of the mistruths to permeate through to the wider consumer. And those mistruths are difficult to reverse once those views have become embedded into the consumer's psyche. Um, we, we do have to wrap this up, unfortunately, Kieran, but maybe that's a good message to leave the industry with heading into the holiday season now as we go into it. Um, and, and there is this growth base from which to build from last year and the lab grown industry is also growing, continuing its growth path. But I think that's a great message to, to hone in on that the industry should maybe be a bit more honest in the way it's selling its product and differentiating its product rather. Karen, thanks very much for your time and your insights. It's really great to see you and have you on the podcast at last. I've really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. And I look forward to continuing our chats um, offline as well. So I appreciate your help always. Thanks, everyone, for listening and have a great week ahead. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rathport Diamond Podcast. For more discussions, news, and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us on diamonds.net, follow Rathport Group on Instagram, and follow Rathport on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes. <laughs>